This is The Rounds Table. Welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. I'm sure you're wondering, what the heck? I thought the show was cancelled. Wrong. My brother and I have decided to reboot The Rounds Table. So here we go. As you know, my name is Mike Freilich. I'm a general internist. I work at Mount Sinai Hospital, and I'm also a clinician scientist at the University of Toronto. And I'll let my brother introduce himself. Hey guys, it's John Freilich here, also an internal medicine doc working both at Scarborough General Hospital as well as at St. Mike's. So what's the plan for the rounds table moving forward? Well, a couple small changes. Number one, we're going to be moving towards once monthly episodes. Number two, every episode will be a rapid fire episode. So four articles packed into one podcast. Without further ado, here we go. John, what's the first article that you're going to be talking about today? So we're going to talk about perioperative management of patients with atrial fibrillation receiving a direct oral anticoagulant. This was published in JAMA Internal Medicine, August 2019. All right, cool. And what was the research question for this study? So they wanted to know if a standardized perioperative management approach for holding direct oral anticoagulants for AFib was safe for elective surgery and procedures. All right, that makes sense to me. And and why is this important? Well, each year, 6 million patients with AFib undergo surgery. It's really unclear what is safe when it comes to holding the anticoagulation. What minimizes bleeding risk? What minimizes stroke risk? There are some existing practice guidelines, but they're not supported by high quality evidence, and at times they're inconsistent. All right, that makes sense to me. I'm, I'm sold. So what was the study designed for this study? So this was a cohort study involving centers across Canada, the U.S., and Europe. They had three cohorts, one for apixaban, one for dabigatran, and one for rivaroxaban. They enrolled consecutive patients aged over 18 with atrial fibrillation who are undergoing elective surgery or procedures requiring interruption of their anticoagulation. They excluded those patients with poor renal function, cognitive impairment, or multiple procedures within 30 days. Uh, They had categorized the patients by high or low bleeding risk, and that was based on the procedure. So high risk could have included surgery requiring neuroaxial anesthesia. Low risk might have included going for a scope. So for low bleeding risk procedures, the direct oral anticoagulant was omitted one day before or about three half-lives before the procedure. For patients with a high bleeding risk procedure, they were held two days beforehand. Now things were slightly different for dabigatran and that depended on the creatinine clearance, but typically it was held for about four days for high risk procedures and two days for low risk. They actually measured anticoagulation levels before procedure. And then they also had a resumption procedure. So after the procedure or surgery, For low-risk procedures, they resumed one day afterwards. For high-risk, they resumed two to three days afterwards. There were a number of different outcomes, mostly related to bleeding and risk of arterial thromboembolism. Uh, There were some secondary outcomes as well. All right, so if I have this right, we have a cohort study. The cohort included people who got one of three DOACs. The main outcome was bleeding versus systemic emboli. And the main decision point was Is this a low-risk procedure or a high-risk procedure? If low-risk, stop a day before. If high-risk, stop two days before. Yeah, you got it. Perfect. And sure, there's nuances with dabigatran, but who on earth uses dabigatran? So let's just ignore that. So what did the patients look like in this study? So they had 3,007 patients enrolled. 42% were on apixaban, 36% on rivaroxaban, and there were some on dabigatran, 22%. The average age was about 72 years, mostly men. The CHADS VAS scores were reasonably high, about three and a half, and there was a real mix of comorbidities. About two-thirds of patients were undergoing low bleeding risk procedures. All right, and then what were the main results? With regards to major bleeding, 
it happened in less than 2% for all cohorts. So in apixaban, 1.3% of patients, in dabigatran, 0.9%, and in rivaroxaban, 1.9% had a major bleeding complication. Now, with regards to the arterial thromboembolism, this again was a fairly rare event. In apixaban, 0.2% of patients, in dabigatran, 0.6% of patients, and in rivaroxaban, 0.4% of patients had an arterial thromboembolism. The other thing was that over 90% of the patients had minimal or no residual anticoagulation at the time of procedure based on measuring, you know, the 10A levels and thrombin levels. All right, cool. So, I mean, overall, you know, pretty darn reassuring. It seems like the vast majority of people using this pretty simple procedure did not have a bleed and did not have a stroke. But what were some of the limitations of this stuff? I think one of the concerns is that there were a low number of patients who had neuroaxial anesthesia, but it was reassuring that a high number of patients had no residual anticoagulation at the time of surgery. It's often not practical to get anti-10A levels or thrombin levels before people are having procedures done. And this is within a population of AFib, so we can't really speak to patients who are on anticoagulation for other reasons like venous thromboembolism. Cool. Take home point here. I think for patients that are on a DOAC for AFib, this strategy appears safe and effective for elective surgery or procedures. There's low rates of bleeding and low rates of arterial thromboembolism. Yeah, I agree. And it's just so simple, which is also really nice. So is this practice changing for you? I mean, I guess we have to acknowledge that it's observational data and there are going to be some concerns about low number of patients with neuroaxial anesthesia, but I'll be pretty comfortable holding the drugs as they did in the study. Exactly. I think low-risk patient you know, stop the DOAC a day before, high-risk patients stop the DOAC two days before. That seems like a pretty sensible advice for the majority of patients on these drugs. All right, so next up, Mike, what are you going to tell us about? All right, so the first study I'm going to talk about is entitled Thrombectomy Results and Reduced Hospital Stay, More Home Time, and More Favorable Living Situations in Diffuse 3. First author was Dr. William Tate. It was published in Stroke in August of 2019. What was the research question asked? So here they were wondering if thrombectomy for stroke is associated with shorter length of stay, as well as higher likelihood of being discharged home. And why is this important? So patients with a large vessel occlusion stroke have really terrible outcomes. 50% are severely disabled or dead within 90 days. But now with endovascular thrombectomy, one in five have mild or no deficit at 90 days. That's very, very impressive. Of course, there are other important outcomes, such as hospital length of stay, how much time they're actually spending at home, and the place of discharge. So I think that's what sets the stage for this. And what kind of study did they do? So it was a post hoc analysis of the Diffuse 3 randomized trial. The Diffuse 3 randomized trial was a study published in the New England Journal of Medicine back in 2018. And essentially, this study was randomizing individuals who present 6 to 16 hours after their stroke onset to determine whether or not randomizing to endovascular treatment where thrombectomy was performed, whether or not that was superior to just medical management. So really, it's a post hoc analysis of those results, focusing on the outcomes, as mentioned, length of stay, living situation up to 90 days post-stroke, and then something called home time during the 90 days post-stroke, and not an outcome we see often. So let me just describe it briefly. Home time, quite simply, is a number of days that the person spends at home following their stroke in the subsequent 90 days. So incredibly uh, patient-relevant outcome. Okay, great. And so who were these patients? What did they look like? Uh, so it was a relatively small trial, uh, 182 patients in total, and again, half 
uh, were randomized to get the endovascular treatment and half were not. The median age was 70, 46% were women. The median NIH score was 16. For our roundtable listeners, you've probably heard this before, but if you haven't, it ranges from zero to 30, and zero to four uh, or five is sort of mild stroke. So the fact that the median score was 16, this is clearly a debilitating uh, stroke. And I should mention that 10% incidentally did get a TPA. And what was the main result? So back in 2018, this study showed very clearly that there was improved levels of functional status with those that received endovascular thrombectomy relative to people who were just treated medically. Now, this post hoc analysis was looking at, number one, length of stay. So the people in the medical group stayed in the hospital about nine days compared to six and a half in the endovascular group. The median time spent at home following the stroke was zero days in the medical group and 55 days in the EVT group. A much higher percentage of patients in the EVT group were discharged home. So for example, by day 30, if you look at the medical therapy group, 70% died or were institutionalized or they were at a nursing home uh, in the EVT treatment group, this was 37%. So pretty impressive results. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Uh, what were the limitations here? So, you know, for starters, this was a small and unblinded randomized trial. You know, outcome adjudication was blinded. But of course, people realized whether or not they had an endovascular treatment performed. So that's always important. This, of course, is a post hoc analysis. So there's many limitations when analyses are performed post hoc. Having said all that, these findings are consistent with other analyses. So I think it's a real deal. And what's the take home point? You know, the take home point is that EVT, this endovascular therapy for patients with a large vessel occlusion causing their stroke, is incredibly beneficial. It's really important that we as healthcare providers realize that just because somebody presents, you know, outside of the quote unquote TPA window, which is approximately four hours, they should still be getting a CTA. They need to be assessed for a large vessel occlusion. And how does this further help change practice? I mean, for me, especially when I'm working up in Sault Ste. Marie and I'm on call for stroke, it reinforces the importance of making sure these patients, even if they're outside the TPA window, are assessed with a CTA. And I think there's so much knowledge translation that needs to happen so that people are aware of this. So back to you now, John, uh, what do you have up next? So the next study we're going to look at is cardiovascular events and mortality in white coat hypertension, a systematic review and meta-analysis. This was published in the Annals of Internal Medicine in June of 2019 by Cohen et al. Perfect. What was the research question? They wanted to know what the association was between untreated white coat hypertension and treated white coat effect for cardiovascular events and all-cause mortality. All right, and take us through what do these terms mean and why is this important? So white coat hypertension refers to those patients who have elevated blood pressures in office, but they're normal out of office. White coat effect refers to patients who are elevated in the office, but normal out of office, but they're already on antihypertensive therapy. We know that hypertension is a leading cause of preventable disability and premature mortality worldwide. There have actually been some meta-analyses to date looking at this effect of what happens to patients with white coat hypertension, but there's been a real kind of mixed result and there's some showing weak or no association with mortality. But since then, there have been additional studies published, so the authors wanted to revisit and reanalyze the data. All right, gotcha. So I think you mentioned this was a meta-analysis of the available literature. Want to give us some more details about the study design? 
literature. So they looked for observational studies published up to December 2018. Uh, the studies had to look at associations between white coat hypertension or white coat effect with non-fatal cardiovascular events. So those are things like coronary artery disease, myocardial infarction, stroke. They also looked at fatal cardiovascular events or all-cause mortality. Studies had to have at least three years of follow-up, and there had to be a reference group of normal tension or patients on antihypertensives that were controlled. And they only included studies that were deemed to have a low risk of bias. All right. And just to make it clear, so white coat hypertension means you have hypertension when you're seeing your doctor in their bright white coat. You are not on treatment, though. White coat effect is that exact same thing. You become hypertensive when you see your doctor, but they put you on treatment. Is that correct? Yeah. And again, outside of the clinical setting, the blood pressures are otherwise controlled. All right. So uh, what was the sort of basic table one here? What did the patients look like? So there were 27 publications that were eligible, over 25,000 patients with either white coat hypertension or white coat effect. And there was a comparison group of about 38,000 with normal tensive or, you know, controlled hypertension. Studies were across North America, Europe, and Asia. And the median age was about 56 years with median follow-up of eight years. Gotcha. And what were the main results here? Now, when it comes to cardiovascular risk, patients with white coat hypertension had higher risk for cardiovascular events compared to those with normal tension, about a 36% increased risk. Patients with white coat effect, however, had no increased risk of cardiovascular events. Now, when it comes to all-cause mortality, there was increased mortality in patients with white coat hypertension, about 33% higher rates compared to those with normal tension. There was no increased mortality for those patients with white coat effect. All right. And what are the limitations here? And, you know, do you buy these results? The main limitation is that these studies are limited to observational data. We don't have any randomized controlled trials. There are some other limitations as well. The nature of patients' race and ethnicity often wasn't documented. And so it's hard to know how generalizable this might be to more of a diverse multicultural population. Right. And I, I mean, I think as well, for whatever reason, you know, for the patient that has white coat hypertension, the doctor is making a decision to treat them or not treat them. And clearly we don't have those granular details given the results of this study. Yeah, I mean, I think that what this is showing though is that we do need to pay attention to white coat hypertension, that it is associated with increased cardiovascular risk as well as mortality. Right, and I guess they're trying to make the argument that if only we treat these people, we might bring down that risk. Does that sound about right? I know, and I guess that's what the hard part is. It's not clear what you do with these patients. I mean, if you put them on treatment, then you're exposing them to side effects, including hypotension, falls, syncope, etc. And we don't have data to say that treating these people with white coat hypertension necessarily leads to better outcomes. Right, exactly. And I just get more and more worried as the definition of hypertension seems to be continuing to change. But uh, regardless, is this practice changing for you? I think it's a reminder that we do need to consider ways to assess for blood pressure outside of the clinic. You know, we, we do have access to these 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure monitors, but often there's a cost associated with it. So perhaps this will help push policy to make it more accessible and more inexpensive so that we can monitor for white coat hypertension outside of the clinic. All right, cool. So last up, back to me. This study was entitled An Artificial Intelligence-Enabled ECG Algorithm for the Identification of Patients with AFib during sinus rhythm, a retrospective analysis of outcome prediction published in The Lancet in August of 2019. So what was the research question for this study? So here the question was, can we use machine learning to identify patients with atrial fibrillation? And what is machine learning? Yeah, exactly. What on earth is machine learning? 
So I think the simplest way to think about machine learning is really as a toolkit. All right, this is a toolkit that can potentially be used to help identify complex relationships and potentially aid in clinical prediction, often used in the setting where you have either really big data or not so big data, but a ton of baseline variables and uh, more traditional statistical approaches might not be able to properly address all of the covariates that need to be adjusted for. But even more than that, really where machine learning has gotten a lot of attention and the main success stories have been you know, interpreting images and image data because there isn't a regression package that you can say, hey, here are these pictures, make sense of all of this. And although I'm falling down a rabbit hole, in this setting, you can actually turn these ECGs into images and into you know, pixels, if you will, um, that a machine learning algorithm can potentially aid in identifying those with atrial fibrillation. So it sounds like a lot of potentially important things. W what was important about this study? Well, I mean, at first glance, you can sort of be like, oh, AFib, you know, a computer can tell me if this ECG shows AFib. You know, an awake medical student can tell me if this is AFib. But the big difference here is that this algorithm was trying to diagnose AFib on normal sinus rhythm ECGs. Uh, that's why this is so freaking cool. And, and shortly we'll get into how they attempted to do this. Wow, okay, so what was the design? So the study design here, it was a retrospective cohort study. And what they did is every patient over the age of 18 who attended at the Mayo Clinic and had at least one normal sinus ECG strip of 10 seconds or more, all of those individuals were included from 1993 to 2017. You know, of course, there'll be many patients that had multiple ECGs. And some of those subsequent ECGs might have shown AFib, or maybe the one a month ago showed AFib. So let's drill down a little bit further. Let's say, for example, John, you have atrial fibrillation. You go to the Mayo Clinic because for some reason you're now in America, and the ECG happens to be normal today. But you also went to the Mayo Clinic a month ago, and at that point in time, it was documented that you have AFib. So you would be labeled as somebody who has atrial fibrillation, and then we'd get the algorithm to analyze not your ECG where it showed AFib, to analyze your normal sinus rhythm. Can the algorithm learn and try to find signals even in a normal ECG, which might be subtle clues that this patient actually has underlying AFib, which is pretty cool. Yeah, it's a pretty amazing idea. Okay, so what do these people look like? So in total, there were 181,000 patients with over 600,000 ECGs. The mean age was 60, 50% 50 were men, and 9% of these individuals had atrial fibrillation. So did the computers do it? Yeah, exactly. Did the computers win? So the approach they use is what's called a convolutional neural network. We definitely do not have time to go into what this is and how it works, but you'll just have to take my word for it. It's one of the sort of state-of-the-art techniques for trying to tackle this type of a, a problem, a machine learning problem. So what did they find? How well did the algorithm do? Well, the area under the curve was 87%. Is that impressive or not impressive? It's really freaking impressive, okay? What does that actually mean, an area under the curve of 87%? What that means is if you have an individual that truly has underlying atrial fibrillation, the algorithm will assign that individual a higher risk of having atrial fibrillation than a randomly selected individual 
that does not have atrial fibrillation. So that's really good discrimination. The sensitivity and specificity were also pretty impressive, 80% for both. The overall accuracy was 80%. And when you allowed the algorithm to use multiple ECGs per person, the test characteristics only got better. This is incredible. I mean, I want to know how it works, but I'm sure it's complicated. Were there limitations to what was done? Yes, you've alluded to one right there. Whenever you use a neural network, it is a black box. I cannot tell you why it showed what it showed. I can just show you here's how well it performed. And in particular, the performance that I described, the performance metrics, those are based on held out data. Held out data, also known as a sort of test set, which is the most ideal way to get a sense of how well these machine learning algorithms are going to work. Although the best way is, you know, let it run on a held out test set from an entirely different setting. You know, now let's get it to look at all the ECGs at Mount Sinai Hospital. So that's one limitation. With neural networks, it is a black box, and I cannot tell you why it works as well as it does work. And then there's some other limitations. So this got a lot of criticism on Twitter, and people said, well, I mean, come on, like, there's other ways we can tell this person is AFib. There's echo findings that help us to identify, might this person have AFib? There's various other medical comorbidities which might help us to determine whether or not they have AFib. Yeah, I get that. But what this is allowing you to do is just looking at a 10-second strip of a normal ECG. This type of performance is really freaking impressive. Anyway, I'm excited, clearly. What do you think the take-home is? The robots are coming. Cardiologists, uh, watch out. You know, I think the take-home point here really is that this is just another example of the potential benefits of machine learning. I'm excited to see what comes next. So how might this change practice? Well, I think certainly, you know, this needs to be reproduced in an entirely different setting to make sure that its performance holds up. But I think it has a lot of implications, especially for maybe under-resourced areas that don't have access to a cardiologist. And I think, you know, time will tell how else it could be uh, implemented. All right. Well, I think that is a wrap. That is episode one. You know, cross that off the to-do list. Rounds table listeners, thank you for listening. We will not have time for good stuff, but I promise to Kieran and Amol, if they're listening, we will not let the good stuff die. I will just have to wait until a next episode. John, thanks so much for joining me and agreeing to this Rounds Table reboot. Thanks a lot for having me, Mike. See you next time. The Rounds Table is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Rounds Table. Thank you to our audio editor, Emilio Garcia Flores. We are also indebted to Amol Verma, founder of The Rounds Table, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director of The Rounds Table.